thank you, thank you. Um, I just thought it was worth saying that as part of the funding that I mentioned uh, in the, about the second phase of the project, uh, the funding bid included money to, um, for one researcher, an early career researcher or a PhD student, to come over and have a first look at the Oasis archives properly. Um, and Quincy, so Quincy Chloe, you're a PhD student in international history at, uh, at Aberystwyth University in the UK. Uh, so Quincy was, he, he won that. We had, we had quite a lot of applications actually, but Quincy won that prize, he won that scholarship. And you came over it, well, you, perhaps you'll say in April, I think it was, and did a, had, a, had a week here. And I just would like to add that um, we've now got a, uh, an additional tranche of European Commission funding, which is going to allow us to prolongate, which is going to allow us to repeat that uh, exercise. So there will be further access by further PhD students uh, through UACs and its funding. That, that's just by way of introduction. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, Dona Primitiu. Um, well, first of all, uh, thank you, Helen. Also, thank you, Emily, who's unfortunately not here. Thank you, UACs, for uh, giving the opportunity for me, first of all, earlier this year to visit um, this magnificent, um, small but magnificent archive. I think it's a, it's a five-star hotel in comparison to other places I've been to before. Um, thank you for the opportunity also to speak today and give um, a type of initial reflection in a way about uh, the documents which I've consulted um, in May uh, 2017. Um, there's been a little bit of background already uh, on the project, um, so I'm just going <clears> to <throat> not say too much about that. But I had a look here uh, mostly at minutes of meetings, newsletters, administrative documents such as the Constitution of UACs, and on the basis of that, most of my reflections are based on that. However, in the last uh, weeks. I've also conducted some interviews with some of the people involved in this period to get more of the oral history side um, in addition to the institutional angle and the idea is to carry that through to do something uh, hopefully with Helen in the future um, really reflecting a little bit more on the role of UACs um, in, in that sort of uh, Britain in, in the European community um, what exactly was the importance of UACs um, I'm well aware that probably not everybody is as familiar with the association as some others. For that reason, I've decided um, to talk first a little bit in terms of a chronology, a timeline, um, just to familiarize yourself a little bit with the association's history before trying to disentangle um, that history. Um, it's not going to be a classic diplomatic history where I'm going to quote a lot of um, documents. It's going to be a bit more conceptual uh, because I think that's where the significance of the association's role, I guess, can be found. So for that reason, um, not diplomacy, but a bit more conceptual history. So as Helen said, the story starts in, in uh, um, 67, uh, 68, then also with the first um, annual conference, uh, the first um, meetings. Um, so these are people like uh, Professor John Mitchell, uh, Dr. Roy Price, um, Jeffrey Denton, who play a very important role. Uh, first meeting is at Chatham House, um, and I think one of the f well, one of the significant things actually about these early periods, of which we don't know that much, there's not that much in in the minutes, is the name. So now we know as the uh, University Association of Contemporary European Studies. Actually, the initial name was slightly different: University Group of European Integration Studies. Um, we don't really know 
up until now why that change happened, change occurred. I think if one speculates, maybe it's because while integration studies is a bit more specific, while I think contemporary European studies is a bit bigger, encapsulates a bit more, that might be one explanation. Or simply as well, UACES makes a better acronym, perhaps, than the other one. Um, so, one of, in these early years, what is significant, what is most important is the annual conference. This is a place where UK academics can actually gather together, exchange experiences, but more importantly, where also people from the Commission are invited to talk about what is happening in Brussels, how the Commission works, and this provides valuable material for teaching, for, for modules, for uh, course materials. So that's actually one of the significant um, reasons, practical reasons, um, why, why UA6 exists in this period. People cannot just, uh, don't just come together, but they also have the possibility of hearing from practitioners from Brussels, from the Commission, what is actually happening in, um, in Brussels. Um, and then there's also smaller, more dedicated conferences, workshops, events. Um, in the first years, not that much yet, uh, because that's partly dependent on funding, funding from institutions, from organizations, which often want to organize something and work together with UACs and give dedicated funding. One of the big problems for UACs at this period is that there isn't such a thing as stable funding, stable finance for the creation of a permanent office, a permanent administration. Um, so these early years are very much dominated by the search for, for finance, for a stable financial future, in which um, the UK is partly important, so the Department of Education and Science, which is going to give a block grant for a couple of years, but linking it to specific conditions and increasing membership, uh, a set of activities that should be organized. But then also the Commission starts to play an important role. And you have to remember this is in the run-up to um, the UK joining the community. So this is often uh, Communication DGX, which is providing um, this funding, because it's important as well to, to carry out that message about uh, the UK joining the community. But then the UK and um, the European Commission is going to play a, a larger role than in the years after that, providing block grants, um, so dedicated sums of money, which allowed the, the association to work, to hire somebody permanently in an, in an office. So there's a bit more of a, a sort of a continuity in its operations. And that's the moment when you really start seeing the first steps of the association um, in its development. Now another thing you see, apart from this search uh, from, from grants for the Commission, is also uh, closer ties with JCMS. So JCMS at the time was a, was a, a journal founded by Uwe Kitzinger um, for Black Walls. So there is a, a nice parallel history where, where uh, UACs is, is, is well, developing closer ties already in the, in the 70s. Um, and often the chair of uh, UACs will sometimes also be the, the editor of JCMS or uh, JCMS editors will be on the committee meeting co-opted. So you can see that slowly coming together of, um, of the journal and the association, which is then going to lead actually in the early 90s to um, UACs becoming owner um, of JCMS. Um, as I said, activities in this period are well largely limited to well, annual conference, 
a set of uh, co uh, smaller conferences, workshops, uh, study groups. There's a regular newsletter as well. Um, in the mid-70s, you see under initiative of Alan Milward, uh, the first start of a pamphlet series, uh, which is a, a type of, um, well, a precedent to what you have today, uh, the UAC's book series, uh, a bit more larger in scale, but that al already actually starts, uh, you see the, the first elements there in the mid-70s. Um, UACs initially didn't start as a charity because the academics that founded it felt it was more of a learned society. However, as the association grows throughout the 70s and also this, this funding coming in from the commission, there's the decision to, to, well, to make it a charity um, in, the, in the late 70s as well, financial resources are also growing and it actually becomes more beneficial. Um, what you see otherwise for, for the association in this period is attempts to build a network with other, other organizations, other groups. Um, early on, I think what is significant is the close ties with the Federal Trust, uh, which is slightly different from UACs, but yet in this period there, there are some uh, linkages. So the, I'd say the Federal Trust is more of a, a, more of a political mission um, towards well, maybe towards European integration, but also other subjects, while UACs is much more of an academic uh, association. But in the initial years, for example, the office of UACs is in the offices, uh, or well, right next to the offices of the Federal Trust. However, at some point there is a decision of, of separating ways a little bit, and UACs chooses King's, Co King's College, actually a university, as its um, base um, to, to base its activities. And you can see there that importance also of retaining a bit more that academic independence and not to be too closely to another association. So there's a fine balance there between building networks, looking at other organizations, uh, but also retaining some academic independence. Um, I think what you see late 80s, late 90s is uh, not just a lot of significant changes at the European Community, EU level, but that also have a profound impact on the UAC, on the UACs, the association, to really start reflecting on what is the future going to bring and how can we prepare ourselves uh, better for that. Um, and you you see in the minutes, you see in the discussions, there is much more an, an emphasis on the research agenda. The element of strategic vision, how to prepare for the future, becomes a lot um, more important. Um, and UAC is also involved in, in, in well, things which are happening at the, at the community level. So Jean Monnet, um, Erasmus, there's some engagement with these new programs, which is new developments. Um, and all of this also well, takes place in sort of a wider uh, societal change in the sense that you see the first indications of technology popping up, which might seem a little bit banal, but... Um, you have to imagine in, in the minutes there's a big discussion about the acquisition of the first computer, which in, in today's terms looks a little bit banal, but this was a significant thing. It's also the creation of emails and, 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 uh, and its own website, which is now actually, in, in the sense of being a platform, much more important than it was um, in that period. Um, as I said before, well, significant in that period is the acquisition, the ownership uh, of UACs for JCMS, which really creates a sort of a financial stability in addition to the commission uh, grants, which are always a bit of a, a political process and, and, and also a usage of personal contacts, which I will talk about a little bit later. Um, 
Then the 90s, I think, is significant to see that the association is really making a lot of emphasis on formalization, professionalization. So you really see the introduction of things like business plans, SWOT analyses, understanding our competitors. Um, also the committee dividing itself up in portfolios, um, and that's the moment where you really see due to growth, also due to external uh, factors that the association is really taking a step <coughs> onwards. Um, I've looked mostly at documents up until 2003, so that's why recent years there's not that much I will say here. Um, so I'll mostly focus on that period between 67 and 2003, for which I have quite a bit of uh, material. So how does it look if, if we look at relationships, if we look at networks? I try to s disentangle a little bit uh, the connections that UACs have has with other organizations in this period. Try to, well, see that there's competitors, there's, there's also organizations UACs cooperates with, there's co-option and there's also support, which usually means financial support. Uh, competitors are, are um, organizations in other countries like Arbeitskreis, like CDC. Um, I see them as competitors because you see it in the minutes when, when there's discussion, for example, about commission grants or about making strategic changes. There's always a reflection for the association to also look abroad what is happening with other organizations, associations. What is, what is how, how do... How do we compare to these other associations? Um, to some extent, that's also the case with Chatham House. But um, I'd say, like for example, Arbeitskreis pops up occasionally throughout the minutes, throughout the years. Um, so I think that's, that's quite interesting. However, there's also a whole range of um, associations, organizations with which UACs cooperates. Uh, things such as uh, the European Lawyers, UKAEL, um, but then also, as I said, federal trust. Um, so, as I said, that's really about expansion of network. Um, in some cases, um, there's also associations with which there's maybe a bit less of a direct uh, link of, of really cooperation. But people that are being drawn in through co-option often in minutes of meetings because they have a certain strategic importance. This can be King's Colleagues. King's College because of, uh, well, because of the premises which are being used uh, by UACs. It can also be things like the Foreign Office um, or some, uh, some other departments um, which are often brought in um, via co-option because of their, well, their importance for network as well. Um, support, uh, mostly financial support as I've stressed, well, mostly comes from the European Commission, uh, from initially DGX, then also Jean Monnet uh, funding. Uh, Blackwell, Blackwell's because of JCMS is also very important, and then there's also cooperation with, with sometimes with embassies, sometimes with organisations for specific dedicated events. But as I said, there was a clear attempt from UACs to try to not just be independent on a, a few sources of revenues. So in that sense, there was really a search in the 70s already for um, a certain financial uh, stability. Um, now, if you look at, at processes, or at things that are happening at, at the longer-term uh, scale, well, the most obvious one is, is one in terms of expansion, not just in terms of staff. Uh, more people either full-time or part-time being hired, so well, the support for a wider range of activities, but then also the network uh, connections with other associations is, is being extended. And this is something that happens over the decades. 
Um, I think what is significant as well is to see um, there's this, this sort of a top-down to bottom-up transition. Early academic uh, conferences, annual conferences, is often invitation only. It's the committee, it's the people in the committee often deciding on who to invite. Well, I think if you look at how UACs works today, research conference, it's a lot more bottom-up. It's a lot more papers being sent in. People that, well, in a way, volunteer to be part of a conference. It's also collaborative research networks, um, research projects which are being sent in, which are asking for funding. So you see a slight change there of, of, of the association also ceding a bit of its control and giving a lot more opportunity to, uh, to its members, to those who are interested in doing something related to European uh, studies. Um, as I said, financial independence, reliable source of income is really important through the Commission, JCMS. That search is, is quite significant in the 70s. There's a lot of worries as well because of cutbacks in, in some instances. Um, professionalization, significant in the sense that and linking that also to this search for financial revenues. Uh, I mean, the 70s and, and linkages with the Commission happen in a very different way, which is a lot more based on personal ties with some people that are based in Brussels uh, and, and having conversations and trying to find out how much UACs might get over dinner. And then well, a couple of months later, it would be confirmed that's the kind of thing that you don't see anymore from the 90s onwards, where really processes are more formalized, streamlined. So there's a big change of environment there, which is driven by this professionalization and, and by this, this well, official programs. I think it's also something that is more external, perhaps, than, uh, than internal. Um, I think what I would like to stress is, is the role of postgraduates, which is not big, not that significant in, in the first decades. But as the 1990s progress, really becomes a significant, big element of, of UACs, of its uh, aims, of its objectives, and really also reaching out to those which are going to become future teachers, future academics, um, how, how, to, how to also bring them closer to the association, but also give them the opportunity to network, to set up uh, research, um, and to learn from each other. Um, that's not so much covered in, in the archival documents because that's more of a recent development, which is more around 2000, 2001, than with the creation of a student forum, a dedicated cluster within UACs. Um, that will be something for future, uh, sort of the next 50 years to look at. Um, but I think that also shows that there's been a very major transition from the association itself from being more of a well, the British Learned Society in its initial setting to much more of a European umbrella association, not just in terms of membership, but also in activities, location, uh, people involved, um, students as well, um, which really shows that there's, a, there's some, something remarkable has happened over the last couple of decades, which also says something about the future um, sustainability, I'd say, uh, uh, for UACs as an association. There's, there's a, just uh, a couple of teams I would like to pick up a bit more in detail and, and where I've included a couple of elements from, from minutes of meetings. One is really that, that balance between autonomy and independence, which I've talked about, which is always difficult, of course, if you're an association and you're dependent on others for, uh, for your function, for, for your activities. 
then it's also a question to what extent can you receive uh, funding, finance, but also not being too reliant on this, on this, um, on this as well. The commission also has its interests, has its agenda, and in some cases also tries to push a little bit um, its activities. Um, there's a couple of interesting things where you can see, for example, this personal approach and these personal visits uh, from officers to Brussels having meetings. This is, this is still very typical for the 70s, but that completely drops out as, as the decades progress and, and there's no mention of these things anymore as we get closer to the, to the millennium. Um, one, one interesting dimension is um, this triangular relationship between the Commission and the London uh, Office, so the London Office of the Commission, which um, in a way UASIS often tried to get past and trying to deal directly with Brussels rather than uh, the London <coughs> Office, because it was felt sometimes that this was a bit of a, a competition. So the London Office of the Commission also was a charge a range of activities and sometimes felt like, oh, but this is something that UACs probably can do. Um, and then UACs was more, well, we'd rather not, we'd rather focus on our own things. And also when it came to funding, um, rather try to talk directly um, to people in Brussels than try to pass first um, through London. Um, as I said, um, network is, is really important, and you see that in, in co-option within the committee, uh, but also when it comes to, when it comes to conferences. Uh, what you do see less, though, over the years is practitioners. So it has become a lot more focused on the research agenda on academics meeting, uh, while, while initial um, annual conferences were very much about commission people, commission representatives being invited as well um, to share their views, which I think marks, marks um, a, a clear difference uh, from, from the initial period. Um, the second theme is a little bit this, this well, inner and outside world, uh, which is one of ex ex expansion and change and competition as well, which I've touched upon uh, before. So as I said, there was a clear sense initially that this was a, a British association. Uh, foreign members could join, but for example, when it was also suggested, for example, to Dutch um, academics that they should form their own association rather then, then uh, well, they could always join UACs, that wasn't a problem. Well, I think today that situation is very different. I think, I think there is a sort of an identity shift in the sense that UACs sees itself much more as a European organization today, still rooted, of course, in the UK, and, and I think this relationship with, uh, with Brexit and with, with Britain and, and, and the EU, it, well, will have a significant impact as well. But there's also that sense that we're in a, in a sort of a post British constellation where, where UACs have a, has effectively surpassed um, that British identity. Um, as I said as well, an awareness of, of competitors as well. Um, and that was some, some of the interesting things also in speaking with, with um, former chairs, former committee members, uh, who shared a little bit uh, also about how they looked at competitors and they felt like the other ones are stagnating, we need to do something which is different, which takes into account the changes that are going to happen through Maastricht. Uh, and, and, and I think in, in that sense you can see where these, these ideas about strategic vision, about professionalization are rooted as well. 
And one advantage is that Oasis has is, is its um, organizational change. So every couple of years you have new people coming into the committee. You have new chairs, people coming in with new ideas as well. Which, if you look at it, that's always a moment where, where change is being spurred from the minutes uh, of, of meetings, where a new chair comes in and has an agenda or wants to push something forward. I think that has been a very important drive not just for growth, but also widening its, its thematics, its activities, but also really thinking about the future and how to prepare best uh, for what is coming, for how academia is also changing, how European studies is also changing. Um, what I want to conclude with is not really big conclusions, it's more reflections, it's more questions. It's difficult to pin down, I mean, of course, there's a constitution and there's objectives listed in that, but it's difficult to pin down actually what is UASIS, whether it's a facilitator, whether it's, it's a learned society or it tries to do other things as well. And it is a question which I'm still thinking about, which I'm still struggling, struggling with, also because there is a clear change throughout the decades, there, because of the expansion, uh, because of the wider range of activities, is difficult, you cannot compare the association from 67, 68 with what it is today in, uh, in 2017. But there are certain things uh, which pop up, that mediating role, that facilitating role. Um, and then also one particular question is, is how it deals with the Commission, how it deals uh, precisely with this question of funding, uh, which always comes with, with certain strings as well. There's always an expectation for, to organize something um, which also benefits the Commission or reflects its agenda. Um, so those are questions I'm still looking into uh, and which are going to help me as well to understand where exactly to position UACs as an association in between the field of European studies and, well, the polity, the European Union, what exactly is, it, is its role being played there? Is it uh, co-constituting or is it, is it more of a gatekeeper or, um, I don't know, more of a clearing house as well, uh, guarding quality? And I think for that reason, JCMS is also quite important, quite significant. That has changed in a way um, the role of UACs a lot as well uh, by, by, by being an owner of that journal. And as I said as well, that turn uh, finally more towards academics, less to practitioners, is also something to take into account. So I'll leave it there, uh, a whole bunch of thoughts and reflections, but I look forward to questions, uh, to comments. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Quincy. I, I can't tell you how much pleasure it gives to, to see all that coming back on the basis of your stay, and that, that's, that's fantastic. And I think there is room, there, there is room now for, for questions or comments. We've been very generous in our timings, and uh, so we have till sort of 3.30, including the coffee break. And perhaps, are you, okay? are you happy to take, to take questions? But yes. for any of us, I should just say, Quincy, as I enter the sixth year of my chair, as, as my, of my mandate as chair, I feel that I probably am a block to some of these things that you've put in. Um, so we are looking for a new chair. <laughs> and on that note, yeah, perhaps I could open it to the, um, to the floor. Is there, a, is there a mic? I think the acoustics are quite good, aren't they? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
question. Can you please say who you are? <coughs> say it's something that starts right from the beginning, the strong um, conscience about, well, we're having too many political scientists, not enough economists. Not enough economists is basically a perennial thing, which is, is something that, that continues. But there is that awareness of where more or less is, is, well, the balance or lack of balance sometimes as well. And there's attempts, um, I'd say attempts, I'm not sure to what extent they were in, in the way successful throughout the 70s, 80s, trying to increase, um, to some extent, the number of lawyers, but mostly the number of economists. So in practice, you mostly see um, political scientists already um, then. Um, one general comment I can make as well about like conferences, disciplines, topics, is that how much it's changed as well. If, if you look at, at the titles of these workshops, at the titles of these conferences from the 60s, 70s, is very broad, sometimes very philosophical, um, and, and where you really see that clear uh, direction to specialism, specific issues, uh, really panels on, on something really small, which well, wasn't there, wasn't there in the early years. Uh, as I said as well, that was often also the case where, where the committee was in charge of, of inviting people and, and just thought like, oh, who do we know? that we could invite to talk about this issue. So it was also very much driven by the committee members themselves and their interests. Well, I think you see today, like, if, if there's, I don't know, a majority of political scientists really wanting to put a panel or a certain topic on a conference, well, it's going to be reflected because they essentially submit their abstracts. And so in that sense, there's a lot more um, autonomy given um, to, to scholars. But I, I think in practice, it is, it's always been very much a political science um, association. Yes. Can I have something? Yes. The article by um, Alan Millwood in 1975 in JCMS in the special issue called What's in the Name? Um, the history of, uh, and it's about the European Studies Movement. And that's a really good read. In fact, um, JC, sorry, yeah, uh, Wiley have just put that article in JCMS back out onto open access. So it's from 1975. It's quite a naughty article, really, as in Alan Millwood's kind of getting really angry about his own institution and what it means to have a new discipline. And the reason I'm taking the mic, sorry, is because it's about interdisciplinarity. And it's a really good piece on... He actually uses the analogy of Marks and Spencer's versus Tesco, um, whereby uh, to, to try and sort of depict how 
um, a new interdisciplinary subject area such as European studies might be meaningless and I think that's the Tesco analogy so I don't, I'm not making any comment on Tesco um, whereas um, he, he feels that the, the, the movement, the European studies movement could give way to, to genuine interdisciplinarity if it takes the MS route sort of the, uh, the more uh, high, high quality and it's really fascinating. He talks about how trying to come up with a new discipline or interdisciplinarity kind of blasts institutions, blasts the cobwebs out. Um, and he talks about the physicality of it, moving out of offices and out of chairs and departments and, and, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm not doing it much justice, so fortunately Wiley has put it back on open access and I urge you uh, to read that and the, and the rest of the issue. And it's specifically about interdisciplinarity and so on. Yes, um, my name is Katie Newman, and I'm the, the USA chair, so I'm uh, Helen, I feel your pain. Um, but I, I have a question about um, kind of the political advocacy of the organization over time. Uh, it, this is a self-serving question, because in recent, in the recent several years, um, our organization has been asked more and more by our members to make statements about current events, about what's happening in the world around us. And it's a difficult situation for this kind of professional organization. And I just wonder if they saw that happen over time and what themes or how did the organization respond to kind of those pressures to become politically active. Hmm. I, could, I could start with, with one clear example, and it's, a, it's also something which I've asked certain committee members and chairs from the past about. One which is the, the 75 referendum, to what extent Oasis was in any way engaged with that. Mm -hmm. What I got back from it is, is mostly um, individual members were very active, had a clearly outspoken opinion, but less the association. So the association wasn't really instrumentalized for, for that political purpose of really campaigning. Um, when it comes to minutes of meetings, there's a little bit that talks sometimes about advocacy, um, but I'd say in practice it's not that much pursued. It's, it's, I'd say the, the, the research agenda really dominates. That's something at least that comes quite clearly uh, from the minutes. So I don't know, maybe in practice there might be something different. But I'd say from what I've heard about the 75 referendum suggests that, that if there was any sense of advocacy it was a lot more individual, it was a lot more the people that had a that were engaged, that had a clear opinion about it, and that would campaign on their own initiative, but not really through the association. Um, it's come up a lot, obviously, in 2016 with the referendum result, and uh, to cut it short, we ended up, I think, um, abiding by a very simple principle, which is uh, to deliver benefit for members because we're first and foremost a membership association. And our late executive director, Luke Foster, just always used to say, you know, what's in it for the members, Helen, sort of thing, as in don't get carried away with your own ideas anymore. Um, but seriously, that, I, I found that really helpful. So last year in 2016, uh, we just issued a short sort of chair statement noting the result of the referendum and uh, sort of trying to keep members encouraged. But... We had to, I felt that I had to <clears throat> be quite cautious in endorsing one side or another. And I, you know, believe me, I'm sure you can imagine, I did get, um, you know, yeah, I, that I did get different opinions expressed to me about how the association might like to align itself. 
uh, but we took that view that we deliver, we're there to deliver benefit for members um, and, and sort of try to drive everything through that. It might be a bit simplistic, perhaps the next chair will come in and, and uh, think of a way around it, but uh, only in the last year, whether it's on Turkey, Hungary, um, the United States in fact, and, and the United States and Trump and travel bans and so on was one area where we decided not to issue a statement. And that didn't please everybody either. So, um, but we're in the case of the, <coughs> the Central European University in Hungary and um, in Turkey, some of our members were directly involved. So we felt it appropriate to uh, issue a sort of statement of support. But it, I, I would say that, sorry, I was going to be short, um, that we stopped far short of advocacy. It's not, it's not really a, an aim. Sorry, but maybe you want to go. Thank you. Uh, so my name is Maria Martia. I'm the sec new secretary of ACS. And thank you very much for teaching me a lot about the organisation. And I have two questions. So one is the serious one, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about um, the competitors you mentioned, uh, Arbeit's Prize, CDC, and just give us a little bit more information on that. And the other one is the more mischievous question. Um, so you've been very thorough and diplomatic in everything you put forward. Uh, was there anything uh, surprising or what was the uh, perhaps most unusual or funny thing that you found in those archives? Thank you. <laughs> I might need to think a bit about the second one. But, um... No, 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 don't think. <laughs> um, competitors. It's, it's, it's a funny relationship because what you see is, is in, in, in some cases that um, they're identified as competitors while also having, in a way, a close relationship to members because some members of UACs aren't just members of UACs. They can also be a member of Arbeitskreis or Chatham. Of, of, um, so there is an element there of, of, of overlap. Um, but what you see... I mean, it's, it's sometimes, what you definitely see in the 70s, it's, it's used as a strategy or as a, as a justification to push the commission for more. Uh, what you often see in, in minutes of meetings is like, oh, but the Arbeitskreis gets this, so why don't we get this? Why don't, aren't we being treated equally? So, and you see that as a sort of um, a justification there, like, oh, we should push a little bit harder, at least to get the same amount of money, or, or actually we're doing more, so we should get more. So that's, that's quite clear. Um, I think that maybe that's, that's a funny thing I, I, I should say. Um, in, in, in 89, when, when Willie Patterson was um, chair of UACs, he wrote a, a strategic vision. And he actually talks about uh, yeah, the fast changing pace and 1992 coming up. But then also he's talking about the formidable competition from Helen Wallace and, and, and Chatham House. So he, and, and, and I spoke to him also last week on Friday, and it's, it's something that came up again, like Helen Wallace was, like that idea of really a clear competition in, in Helen Wallace, which is funny because Helen Wallace was very much involved with UACs as well in the early 70s. So seeing that shift from, from somebody who was very much part of, of uh, UACs being established to being perceived as, as, as a clear competitor as well was quite significant. 
Um, I think another thing that was surprising, maybe it's more in the sense that if you get minutes of meetings, you don't always know who says what, what, what it reflects. But then if you actually talk to the people, and I think for that reason oral history is a fantastic addition to this project, you can actually start seeing what people find important. Like Willie, for example, was really talking about big strategic visions. Um, last Saturday when I spoke to um, Eve Evans, who was a, the administrator for UASIS for well, decades, she focused on, on the students, on, on the scholarships for the College of Europe, which UASIS was organizing, and she was talking a lot about giving, giving opportunities to, to students, sometimes coming from, from well, difficult social backgrounds, but giving them the opportunity to go study in Bruges, to go study abroad. So you see, just by where the people put the emphasis, also what a wide range of, of views, opinions um, there were at the time. And then the, those minutes of meetings are just sort of a mix and a reflection, a little bit of everything. But then you need to go and actually talk to people to start puzzling together. Well, oh, who, who was actually there? Who thought what? And, and yeah. We take one more, and then and then we'll go go to the coffee break. Perhaps. Thank you. Uh, I'm Simon Ashwood. I'm the treasurer to Kobe from Paul. We've talked about that. You mentioned the the relationship with the commission. I'm just interested in what you see. Oasis thinking the commission's agenda was, and what the commission thought the commission's agenda was. I mean, did you look at? Commission documents at all, mm. and how much they was it was there an accurate understanding on the UAC's part of, of where the commission was coming from and where it was going to? Mm. I can't say that much from the commission side because I simply didn't have time here as well to look at that angle. Um, one thing I can say about the relationship as well. What you had, for example, in the case of, of Roy Price, who was important in the initiation, the foundation of the Oasis, well, a couple of years later, he moves on to go to Brussels, and he's going to be, well, especially for the mid-70s, the most important person there for Oasis, and that's going to be the, the contact in the commission for Oasis to talk about grants and to make sure, actually, the financial future is assured. Uh, so those personal contacts are essential. And that's not just for Roy Price, but it's also later on with uh, Peter Dixon, um, who's also quite important from the Commission, also at the London office then at some point, but then other people from the Commission like Jacqueline Lastenus. So there's a succession of, of individuals that in a way had some affinity or some link with the Oasis and that are well, really important um, for the association in setting itself up, setting up its finances. One of the things you see in the 70s, for example, study visits are quite, quite important. Um, and these were study visits for, for academics, so not, not for students. So, um, so that, is, that is something well, well, which is, I think, encouraged from the Oasis, but also from the Commission side. Uh, so in that sense, there was, there was overlap. But otherwise, specific topics, there's not that much that comes to mind. Thank you again, Quincy. It was wonderful. Let's break, and after the break, we come back, and we're very fortunate to have Piers Ludlow, who's sitting here, who's going to talk to us about his research uh, that's brought you here to work in the historical archives. Thank you.